have uh, faculty review the evening before the course, uh, and when we were talking, we thought that it would be um, better to have Mike Sag do his talk first, followed by uh, Vicki Cargill. So Mike is the next speaker, and as he gets up, I'll say he's a great friend, colleague, and a full professor of medicine at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Yeah, so standards in Alabama are quite a bit lower than the rest of the country, I'll say that. So it's really a pleasure to be back, and today I'm going to talk about uh, what's new in guidelines, but in particular what's new with regard to initiation of therapy. So I'll jump right into it. Uh, I have a lot of um, companies that I've consulted for or I do research for, but I'm, no, I'm not on any speakers bureaus. And uh, the learning objectives are to describe the differences regarding when to start between the different guidelines, articulate the reasons for supporting early initiation of therapy, and explain why there's an increase in uh, estimated GFR when certain antiretroviral therapeutics are used. So let's start with a pretty simple question. In an asymptomatic positive person with a viral load of 30,000, I typically recommend starting antiretroviral therapy at a CD4 count of? It's pretty straightforward. Go ahead and vote. Y'all know this, right? Charlie's Angels, right? Isn't it? If you answer that question affirmatively, you're over 50 years old. Okay. Oh, so 71%. Interesting. That's changed. I've come to this course a lot. It's one of my sort of highlights of my year is coming back, and um, that started off probably at about 10% uh, five years ago. Interesting. So let's jump right into this then. Um, these are, this is a little bit hard to read from maybe the back of the room, but, but you can kind of, it's like a stoplight. But down here are the recommendations from, from different guidelines, U.S., European, WHO, when CD4 counts are less than 200. So no controversy there. Everybody recommends it. And this is over time. This is going up to 2012, and this is around 2000. So for 200 to 349, the WHO took a little while to come on board. The U.S. guidelines and Europeans were pretty much in line, but all recommend for 350 or less. For 350 to 500, WHO is still a negative. Uh, European have sort of come along as sort of cautionary, and the U.S. guidelines have moved forward and said yes. And then for greater than 500, the U.S. is the only one that's both the ISUSA guidelines and the HHS guidelines uh, recommend starting. And what I want to do today in the first part of the talk is give some of the rationale behind at least why the trends are going this way and why the U.S. guidelines are recommending earlier initiation of therapy. So what are the reasons? First, biology. Most of you <coughs> excuse me, have seen this many, many times, but this is these are data derived from <coughs> studies by George Shaw when he was at UAB and David Ho here, and basically it shows the life cycle of HIV. When you give antiretroviral therapy, you're blocking the infection of new cells from becoming infected. And from this one uh, graph, it was determined that there were 1 to 10 billion, with a B, billion viruses produced a day, and that the cells lived on average about a day. And this vicious cycle, it, it's amazing when we first discovered this, that I, I was amazed that people could live even a week with this kind of onslaught, but they go many years asymptomatically before disease sets in. And antiretroviral therapy blocks that. 
And so the question is, what are the consequences of ongoing replication to this degree in lymphoid tissue over a period of months to years prior to either being diagnosed or starting on therapy? And one of the key ingredients that is a consequence of this ongoing replication is inflammation. And there's been a lot of data uh, produced over the last several years that, that um, ex try to explain this phenomena, which is the difference in multimorbidity between those patients who are HIV negative and those patients who are HIV positive based on uh, age. So over on the left-hand side, 45 to 50 years old, going up to 65 years old or greater for the HIV negatives, and for HIV positives, the same group. So you can kind of eyeball it side to side, but if we just take this middle bar, among people 55 to 60 years old who have HIV, a lot of, over half have at least two to three comorbid conditions. When we look at that here, it's less than 30%. And so it's like frame shifted in the wrong direction for people who have HIV. And I see heads nodding in the affirmative in the audience because we all see that, don't we? We're internists again, fortunately, but we're seeing things happen earlier, heart attacks, certain types of cancer. And so the question is that I have is, what is what's the mechanism for that? And some of the hints, although we haven't quite proven causality yet, some of the hints are from looking at inflammation. Here's a study uh, that was by Peter Hunt and his colleagues at UCSF with Paul, um, who look at different markers of inflammation, and these are some that you recognize very well, like D-dimer, soluble CD4, which is a great marker of inflammation. And you can see that on average, the odds of mortality are highly, are, are highly associated with elevation of these markers. If you look a little further, I think this is really quite telling. Here's a patient with HIV positive who's untreated. And if you just look at these markers of, of activated cells, you can see that it's quite high untreated, and it comes down nicely once somebody starts on ARV therapy. But the message here, I think, is that if you compare people on successful ART for more than a year or two, and you compare them to HIV negatives, there's a difference, implying that there's some sort of triggering still going on that's not major, it's subtle, but it seems to be real. And there's other studies that support the same thing. This study, I think, makes the point even better. The question was asked earlier to Tim about, should you start everybody on acute infection? My answer would be unequivocally yes, unless you have a strong reason not to. And I think it's shown here in this slide. So let me walk you through this. Here's HIV negative. So you can see the same markers, and they're quite low. Then let's look at somebody with acute infection or early infection versus chronic HIV, pre-therapy here and here, and they look identical or very similar. And then here they are on antiretroviral therapy. And while it's not dramatic, you can see that there's more control, better control here when they started with acute or early infection than when they started, this is after two years of art, than when they started after two years from seroconversion or more than, on average, about three years. And so the point is, something's going on. Something seems to be priming the immune system to remain in a more activated state relative to negative controls. I don't know the answer to that. I can't give you the reason. But it does seem to be present. Again, an association, not causality, but very intriguing. So moving forward, then, what are some other reasons? Well, the medicines are better tolerated. I think if we were dealing with the D drugs, 
I don't think anybody would be pushing for earlier intervention. And in fact, back in the day, those of you who answered the question to Charlie's Angels would remember that, that we did recommend treatment for most everyone in the mid-90s, and then we, whoa, not so fast, my friend. And the reason was because the drugs were pretty toxic. The drugs today, as you can see from this slide, obviously are more convenient, but from all of our practices, we see that they're much better tolerated. Does that mean they don't have any toxicities? Of course not. But we're weighing out the relative toxicities long-term of the drugs versus the long-term known toxicities of unchecked viral replication. And I think that balance is tipped pretty firmly in the direction of treating with therapy. There are randomized control data, I'm not gonna go through it with you, for people that have CD4 counts of 350 or less. That's pretty well documented that starting at 350 or less, absolutely, and that's why the, that's why the WHO has gone to a recommendation, that's why um, the European guidelines, all the guidelines have moved to the green light on that. Above 350, not much randomized control data. The biggest hint that we have is from, ironically, the 052 study that you all know very well, the study of prevention where they randomized to early intervention in discordant couples or late. They showed marked reduction in transmission, but they also showed a reduction in AIDS-defining conditions and, uh, and death when, as a combined outcome. That's not exactly the type of study. So there's an ongoing study called START that'll probably be out in the next three to five years. I would be stunned if that study showed us anything uh, that's counter to what we've already seen. And the reason why I'm saying that is that every study to date, be it cohort or randomized trial, has shown no evidence of harm from earlier intervention with the modern therapies, although the study will wait and see what it shows. I could be stunned. I don't think so. Cohort data. A lot of cohort data. None of which shows harm and a few of which show benefit. And this one in particular has gotten a lot of heat um, this is the study from about three or four years ago, Mari Kitahata, NA Accord, I was a part of that study, that looked across the board in a very complicated but, but methodical way using marginal structural models to determine relative risk of starting therapy above 500 or below 500, and they found a relative risk, relative hazard of actual mortality at starting less than 500 versus higher, and that was highly statistically significant. Now, a lot of people have criticized the study because it has, by definition, a channeling bias. That is a bias of, I'm going to start you on therapy, I'm not going to start you. But nonetheless, this da these data are pretty strong. And the people who have fought it the hardest are the people who are, are advocating for the randomized trial. And I think that's fine. I'm not against the randomized trial at all. But I think that taking the shots at this study for methodologic reasons, when I saw how hard and how rigorous the investigators were before they even thought to publish this, I think is, in my opinion, a little bit unfair. Another reason to start early, in my opinion, is because we've seen data over time that if someone can get their CD4 count above 500, their long-term outcomes are better if they're not, than those who are not able to get a CD4 count above 500. And it's sort of obvious, but if you start at a CD4 count less than 200, it's a hell of a lot harder to get up to 500 or even, three, or even less than 350 to get up about 500. If you start between 350 and 500, you're number one closer at the outset, but you do get there. So that's a little bit of backhanded logic, but the point is, is that we know that there's an association of doing well when the CD4 counts above 500 at some point, and we know we can get there easier if we start earlier. 
And then finally, people say, well, you're going to get more resistance. Actually, that's not true if you start early. You don't get more resistance. You actually get less. Now, that could be an epiphenomena of sorts because the people who have been tested, got into care, stay into care earlier are those who are maybe more likely to take their medicines regularly and not have as much resistance as opposed to those who show up with PCP in our ER. Nonetheless, the data are the data, and the HOP study showed that there's less resistance, at least among those who started early versus starting later. Public health. Now, I don't think we should ever treat someone solely for the reason of public health. However, when you have individual health being positive, in, in the ways that I've been showing those trends, and then you add public health to it, I think that's sort of what tipped the scales from sort of consider in the U.S. guidelines to more of a recommendation. And you already know about the 052 data. I will just show you this that I've, I've shown here before, but just to re-emphasize that the estimated number, and you're going to hear about Cascade a lot today, the estimated number of people who are unaware of their infection but who are truly infected are about 25% of the population. So the test and treat concept test get them into care at least is really critical for finding these folks and if you get if, if you find these people these folks and get them into care get them on treatment this 25 percent is is responsible for over 50 percent of the new infections every year and so that's a public health reason potentially to treat people and then finally my point is it's kind of common sense I think from an academic perspective we can dig into all this all we want to but let's take a case example here we have a patient who has a CD4 count of 650, and he's 30 years old, or she's 30 years old. And for those of the 70 some odd percent of you that said treat, you'd probably treat this person. Others might wait till 500. If we start at, th at age 30 and we put them on treatment, they're on treatment for an order of about 40 years, at least if they live to be age 70, and I think it's likely to live beyond age 70. If you start them at age 35, they're on treatment for 35 years. What in the world is the difference? Come on. It's not like we're going to treat them ever or not, right? We know they're going to end up on treatment. It's a question of when. Now, I will say, and we talked about this last night, that there are other considerations. If we're in a resource-poor country like the United States, it may be a problem for us to be able to afford medicines for all these folks, right? And so I think we have to balance everything out. But I'm, I'm separating out medical, clinical indications versus sort of a global economic question. But so looked at it from an individual perspective, I have trouble understanding what all the fuss is about. Because we know we're going to treat those of us who had the Charlie's Angel question correct, remember the bad days. I don't have to remind you about what it was like and what any one of our patients that back in 1990 would have given to have access to the medicines that we have today. What they would have given. And we're sitting here debating whether they should have access to it. At, at given CD4 counts. I find that a little hard to swallow at times. And during that five-year period of time that we wait, some of the question I have is, is there harm during that time period? And I don't know if there is or not, but you take the inflammation story, you take the ongoing replication that I talked about earlier, and I would argue that if we're not only talking about five years and there's not a resource question at play, at least if it were me, I would be on treatment personally. And that's maybe not a great reason, but here are the reasons of what could be harm. We know that there's destruction of lymphoid tissue over time. We've already talked about the inflammation. Whether that inflammation is associated with, we know it's associated with cardiovascular disease. We don't know if it's causal of cardiovascular disease. 
or increased malignancy or increased aging, as David Wall is going to talk about later today. And there's this new phenomenon of cognitive decline, which I can't tell you is due to HIV or the drug. So I have to be balanced in that commentary. So we are seeing some patients as they're getting into their 60s and 70s, it's not an Alzheimer's picture, it's more of an executive function uh, type of issue. And just to quickly describe that, um, one of the best descriptions, I think it was David Clifford who told me this, that if you want to distinguish between Alzheimer's and say vascular dementia, think about a jukebox. And you have records all along there. And when somebody has Alzheimer's, the record is gone. You hit B7, the thing goes to find it, it just isn't there. When you have vascular dementia or executive function problems, the record's there, it just takes a little bit longer to find the sucker. But when you find it and put it on, it plays just fine. It just takes a little longer. Uh, I'm suffering with that, um, trying to remember Paul Wolberding's name. So in conclusion, we understand the pathogenesis data, the cohort data, the implications. And waiting until randomized trial could well lead to harm that may not be reversible. I'm very happy to change my opinion or rethink this once those trial data are out. But this is now. We have data in hand, and I think we're obliged to act on that in our most logical way until such data are around. Waiting, it's, it's like existentialism. A decision not to decide is a decision, and there are consequences of that. And I think we need to consider that based on the evidence we have in hand. So let's go down to what to start. You have a 34-year-old woman that everyone would agree should be treated, and wild-type virus, HLA-B5701 negative. Let's go ahead and vote about which not nukes you might use. Go ahead and vote. Notice number five here. Paul's buying beer for everyone after the meeting down at Cheers. Okay, so the majority go with tenofovir FTC. And I want to tell you about the new drug that, that Tim said I would tell you about. Um, this is a tenofovir prodrug of sorts. It's called TAF, just for short. And, and the take-home point for this drug is that it gets into the cells in a much more efficient way than regular tenofovir does. And that allows you to use several-fold less drug to get to the same effect. And these are just data to show that. Here's the area under the curve for, um, for inside the cell for the tenofovir at these higher levels. And then here down, down below, the colors got messed up. The take home point is that you get much higher levels inside the cell. I think I can show it better here. Yeah, this is a better way of showing it. So here's the intracellular concentration of regular tenofovir that 81% of you chose. And obviously it works pretty well. But this is eight milligrams of the, of the prodrug, eight versus 300, and you're getting the same amount inside the cell. 25 milligrams, sevenfold, 40 milligrams, 20-fold. And it's thought, this is the hypothesis, that it's really the extracellular drug that's causing a lot of the toxicity. Time will tell. Studies are underway, but so far it seems to be holding true. So bone, kidney toxicities may be less when you give a lot less drug, and that's what the studies are trying to evaluate. So which PI would you include if you were going to? So this is adazanavir boosted, lopinavir, darunavir. This is adazanavir with cobacistat, not ritonavir. Darunavir with cobacistat, or you wouldn't use a PI in this woman with a CD4 count of 84 and a viral load of 86,000, as Andy Griffith would say. Who would have thought that Opie would have come up and be a director? I mean, really? 
and B is turning over in a grave. All right, so Darunavir, Ritonavir got the number one. A few people, bold early adapters, are going with Cobacistat, and 20% wouldn't use a PI. Okay, so what I want to talk about here is this notion of an increase in serum creatinine that has nothing to do with glomerular filtration. So we're all taught in medical school or pharmacy school or uh, MP school, wherever, that creatinine is a good surrogate for glomerular filtration. And that's true. But there's another way that creatinine gets from the plasma into the urine, and that's through proximal tubule cells, through these transporters. And it turns out that tenofovir um, can, uh, can interfere with this sort of process. But importantly, other drugs can, like cobacistat, can interfere with this in a major way in this enzyme called MATE1. So this, in a, this inhibits so much that you get about a 0.1 to 0.15 elevation in serum creatinine. And when you plug that into Cockroft-Galt or whatever, you get an apparent reduction in GFR that's not a true reduction in GFR if you measure with IL-hexol or other direct measurements of, of, of GFR. So this is, this is an example of how you can boost with cobucystat versus ritonavir. The antiretroviral activity is, is uh, shown to be non-inferior, works generally pretty well. But look at this. Here is the, in blue, the cobucystat change, and here in green is a change with just ritonavir, which apparently has some effect as well. But notice that the bump in creatinine is about 0.1, like I showed you before. And there's a reduction co concomitantly, of course, because Cockroft-Galt estimates that GFR drops by about 15 cc's per minute, estimated drop from what it really probably is. And that happens in the first two weeks. Notice how after that point in time, it stays stable. So the bump is one of inhibition of that enzyme, leading to an apparent decrease in GFR. So what anchor drug might you use um, if you're not, if you you have your choices here. So you have um, your, most people chose Sinofovir FTC. Would you add it with Afavirins, a PI, Raltegravir, Elvitegravir, Dalutegravir, which you've already heard about, and something else. Go ahead and vote. Marty McFly. Yeah. Doc Brown says. All right. Interesting. Most people went with raltegravir. So the integrase inhibitors are clearly winning the ma majority. And about 11% with dolutegravir. Uh, some folks win the favorins, et cetera. So a nice spread. This is an interesting study um, of dolutegravir. Uh, it's called the single study, where they compared uh, either with abacavir. This was with abacavir 3TC. I wonder why, since Viv is making dolutegravir, that they chose abacavir. 3TC is their paired, but that will probably come out as a single tablet versus a uh, fixed dose combination of uh, uh, Favarin's FTC and tenofovir. And you can see that this is in gold, this is in the sort of orange tenofovir FTC, the uh, fixed dose combination 81% versus 88% with dolutegravir and abacavir 3TC. And it didn't matter what the, didn't matter what the viral load was, it could have been a, over the 100,000. And this was actually statistically different. There was 7.4% difference, but the lower end of the confidence interval was plus 2.5, indicating that there was a hint of superiority as opposed to just equivalence. And then CD4 counts, like with all the uh, 
with all the integrase inhibitors, you get an increase there for reasons that aren't clear, but it's, it's definite and it's seen with most every integrase inhibitor versus other types of drugs. As far as resistance, this drug performs dolutegravir, at least in the group of integrase inhibitors, a little bit more like darunavir does in that it's a little bit harder to get mutations when there's failure over time. Um, and you can see with the efavirenz group, you get the classic 103N or the 190A. As far, this is, this is bizarre. I, I can't explain it. It just happens to be, I mean, I can't explain it. There's another enzyme besides mate one that's inhibited. But with dolutegravir, for whatever reason, nothing to do with cobacistat, you get the same type of inhibition of GFR, be, uh, estimated GFR because of an inhibition of a proximal tubule creatinine transporter. So if you thought, well, I don't have to worry about it, I'm not probably going to use cobacistat much, whoops, you're going to use dolutegravir, you've got to deal with that too. And so, since it's going to be paired with Abacavir 3TC in most cases, um, you may not have to worry about the tenofovir component unless TAF comes along, it might be better. But the take-home point is, look at that. There's an increase in serum creatinine uh, of about, you know, 10, 0.1 basically is how, how it goes, 0.11. And you can see that happens in the first two weeks. And again, it's simply, it has nothing to do with true GFR. Iohexol would be normal. It's just an inhibition of the creatinine secretion. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. In an asymptomatic HIV patient with a viral load of 30,000, I, that means you, we, typically recommend starting therapy at which CD4 count? Go ahead and vote. Okay, 87%, wow, so can we compare that to the time before or no? Yep, so 16% were persuaded by my passion that Jerry Friedland will promptly disavow you of as soon as he pops up here. Okay, so going back to our question in this uh, woman uh, with a CD4 count of 86 or so and a viral load of 86,000 or something. Um, which of these uh, would you use? And notice that this, uh, some new tenofovir-like drug, which would be TAF. I hate snakes. Wow, amazing. Big change there. Okay, so I, I, I'll, I'll put a word of caution that I'm excited about this too. We still need to see the data in the long run, but it looks pretty promising so far. And then which PI would you use? Or would you use, um, uh, oh, this is with the cobacistat. So would you use cobacistat to boost adazanavir or darunavir, or would you stick with ritonavir is kind of what this is asking. It's Dr. No, who morphed into Dr. Evil. Okay, so some would think about using it. The darunavir studies are underway. I showed you the adazanavir study. And so there was some uh, interesting new thoughts about all this. Okay, and I think that's my last slide. Oh, no, sorry. Ah, and then what would you use as an anchor drug? Um, a fovereign's a PI, one of the integrase inhibitors or something else. Go ahead and vote. Daniel Ratcliffe. 
Wow. Okay. And comparing? So a lot of people were sort of impressed with the Dalyutegravir data. Great. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm happy to answer questions. Super, Mike. Um, so while the questions come up, I've got one. Um, and this is a complicated one. I, maybe we can get more into it later in the panel. But I had a patient, this is a few years ago, who didn't want to start treatment. C4 was dropping. And I let him drop because he didn't want to start treatment until CD4 went below 200. He came in with horrible oral thrush. His CD4 now um, is never much above 300. Right. Um, even though he's been fully suppressed for right. years. I have another patient, these are both real patients, um, who kind of considers himself a long-term non-progressor. CD4 is about 500, um, but his viral load keeps creeping up and it's now 20,000. And so I think part of this issue is, no matter what we might think on a policy basis, how do we handle yeah. an individual patient? How hard do we push? And if a person says, I'm willing to do whatever you think, doc, yeah. um, I'm really glad you asked the question because in the in the 30 minutes of time or 25 minutes that I have to present, I don't have time to say this, and that is, of course, common sense always trumps. If you have a patient who's not ready to start, they're not ready to start, and it doesn't do any good to say, I really believe it. You need to do this. No. You, but you know, but I, I just wonder if I shouldn't have pushed well, that patient harder. I, I'm not sure, Paul, because sometimes people, you know, are from Missouri and they need to be shown, you know, show me state. And, and, and nothing against Missouri, I'm from Alabama, for God's sakes. But the take-home <laughs> point, the take-home point is that medicines don't work as we saw in the voice study unless they're taken. And medicines aren't taken unless there's a belief that they're going to do some good. And I, I've put out a word of, of interesting caution that we should talk about maybe with Mark Sokalski's talk. You're going to see some incredible dr data on new oral drugs. And the 100% the success rates in 12 weeks for hepatitis C cure but remember that that's just cream, that's getting the cream off the top of people who really, really, really believe that they should be treated. And we start applying this to the four to five million people who have hepatitis C, 70% of whom don't know it, convincing them when they're asymptomatic to take medicines even for 12 weeks is going to be a challenge. So it goes back to the principles we've learned here. You can't force people to do what they don't want to do. So there's a zillion questions, and I'll try to sort through and kind of uh, group them as we uh, go along. But um, one of the questions is the concern with tenofovir, um, with creatinine, especially in patients over 50. Um, yeah. how, how does that come into your thinking um, in choosing first-line drugs? You're going to hear about this from David. These are great sort of setups for the rest of the day because um, the creatinine does get more fragile as we get older and so I think that other options may be thought of and and perhaps that's why Gilead and, there, and maybe some foresight decided hmm you know we see the epidemic getting older maybe we need different kinds of drugs and at first you might question why do they create a new drug when they're having a blockbuster well they're preparing for the future perhaps so I, I would be a little bit more cautious about tenofovir and somebody especially over the age of 60. Um, a couple of th three so far of the stack that I've gone through um, question about starting therapy or not in 
long-term non-progressors or elite controllers yeah. by the various definitions that are out there? Fantastic question. Again, I didn't have time to get into. And the answer is unknown. I think this is the place where the greatest question mark is. For me, check mark next to acute infection, check mark versus uh, asymptomatic people with higher CD4 counts and a detectable virus to a large degree. But a long-term slow progressor, especially an elite controller, meaning they're less than 50 copies without any therapy at all and a CD4 count of 800, I have trouble pulling the trigger on that. That's where we have to have a discussion. But based on the studies by, out of Deeks and Hunt from your place, um, those patients ultimately start to progress at some point in time. So watchful waiting is reasonable. If they feel you feel based on the inflammatory stuff, you want to pull the trigger out. I, I don't see there's anything wrong with that, but that's, that's a gray zone. I came across three more questions about the elite controllers uh, as you were um, uh, G right. giving your giving your answer uh, so a, a, a comment I guess more than a question but um, the balance in you know what we're recommending for individual patients about when to start uh, versus um, um, I mean I'm gonna split this into two questions so th this was um, the first part is um, in terms of what to start um, maybe when to start as well mm -hmm. if you're dealing with an adolescent 16 year old uh, where you have good reason to think that adherence is going to be a, a, a real issue. Does that influence your choice of your first-line regimen? Absolutely. And we're going to hear about that next. Uh, maybe not specifically adolescents, but difficult to treat patients, populations of people who are not thinking in a way that um, sort of the mainstream does. And, and so, number one, people don't want to take medicine that makes them feel bad. I don't care who you are. So you want to lean towards the drugs that are least likely to give us side effects, those that are most convenient. And ideally, those that are most forgiving. But when I talk to Glenn Treesman at Hopkins, um, and he has a lot of difficult to treat patients who have a lot of underlying psychiatric disease, he still would recommend leaning towards treating earlier because give them a chance to fail. But you just got to think ahead about, in that case, um, what what you can rescue with down the road. So it's a delicate. Those are the hardest to make those decisions on, and it's all individualized. There's no recipe or cookie cutter that works for this. <laughs> So um, there, there are uh, two uh, cards with sort of come at this with different points. One is uh, sort of an implied criticism that you didn't uh, fully address the social setting of the, of the patients, the difficulty um, given all the psychological uh, problems, homelessness, poverty. That's uh, why I went first. And hunger. And that's why, that's, seriously, no, but, that's why we flipped the talks. But I, I'll read this next one verbatim. Okay. This was... Mike Sag's best lecture in greater than 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I finally woke up. <laughs> I, let's have a show of hands. Who likes Mike Sag? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, one another concern about um, earlier starts, and I, I, I share your beliefs, but uh, concerns that, you know, we really don't have a lot of very long-term uh, history with these drugs, and, and I guess the implied thing is that you don't want to start too early because it might turn out that we'll have drugs like that turn out to look like D4T at some point. Um, what's your concern about the long-term toxicity in terms of uh, when to start? I, I think it's a, a great point, but um, it's, a, it's, again, this sort of conundrum because this disease is young. It's only, I mean, only 32 years in, in the making. So by definition, we can't have drugs that have, we have 32 years of experience with. 
but we do have experience with what happens when the virus isn't treated. So we're balancing against that. And I think we have to just kind of make a decision, go with it, use our best information at the time, and keep our eyes open. Be honest with ourselves about, is this working? Are there problems? So uh, this is a question that I think I know the answer to, but, um, but maybe there's another aspect of it. Do the new drugs have any effect on lipodystrophy? Uh, but I would guess uh, the issue is, do any of the new ones cause lipo? atrophy or lipodystrophy? Yeah, I think that the lipoatrophy, especially lipoatrophy, was mostly related to mitochondrial problems with the D drugs and, and interference with the DNA polymerase there. And the newer drugs almost across the board do not have that effect. And they're screening for that. As they develop a drug and, and before it goes clinical, as it's preclinical, they're looking at the effect on mitochondrial DNA and, and that's why I don't think we're likely to see that in the future. So, um, a question about uh, inflammation and how do we think about in inflammation in the setting of treated HIV infection and does it compare to other uh, conditions in the general population like rheumatoid arthritis Absolutely. and how much inflammation yeah. do we see with those other conditions yeah. that are also associated with cardiovascular risk? Right, we're not alone. I mean, this is, this is, that's the whole point. We come to the meetings on HIV, we see HIV every day. If we're in an inflammatory bowel disease clinic, if we're in a rheumatoid arthritis clinic, problems happen earlier and comorbidities with them as well, probably for the same reasons. I mean, at least inflammation is a common final pathway. And um, so we have a lot in common with our brothers and sisters who take care of other chronic inflammatory conditions. I would say ours is a probably less in terms of ongoing inflammation, but still there's an issue. So really quick, uh, Mike, um, does the uh, increased intracellular TDF uh, level correlate with better virologic outcomes with TAF? Yes, uh, in the sense that if you look at plasma level versus outcome, it's dramatically different. So the intracellular levels are what's key. That's where the virus is replicated. Another quick one. Patient on uh, about renal function. Combinations of cobacistat and tenofovir, at what point would you stop the meds, yeah, yeah. decrease the yeah. dose. Right, so person, I mean the package insert will say somewhere around 65 or 60 cc's per minute. We can look it up, I don't really remember. Personally, when, when, the, when the creatinine clearance estimating starts to go below 65, I, I start to look for alternative. It goes below 60, then I'm headed that way because I can't tell if it's that Kobe, if it's Tenofovir, or it's something else, and if there is an alternative, I might go there. So though, right now, I'd say until we get more information, and, and, and the companies are developing data for how to use this in those populations, but it is more difficult because your EGFR is altered. And the trouble with the fix those combinations sometimes is that they're fixed both, and it's hard to break them apart, right? right. Um, and then the last point uh, someone asks, and I think I can answer this, uh, why do we need an anchor drug when we start tenofovir FTC and boosted darunavir in a new patient? I would say that the boosted darunavir is the anchor drug. So, yeah, I answered your question. Right. Thanks, okay. Mike. Thank you.